the way I made peace with it was to just picture God as the most transcendently fabulous drag queen ever. <laughs> and then you could say she, you could say he, doesn't matter. She's fabulous. She's she's aesthetically amazing, you know, beautiful, and yet completely knows how to take care of what needs to be taken care <laughs> of and get shit done. <laughs> Eden, and this is Keep the Mess, Messy Conversations with Messy People, where we have conversations about how we relate to our bodies and go down whatever rabbit holes we find. I started this podcast because I'm a bit obsessed with this topic. I struggle with embodiment myself and wanted to learn about how other people live in and out of their bodies. I figured if I'm interested in these things, chances are that others are interested as well. So welcome, fellow obsessives. In this episode, I speak with my friend, Byron. It was lovely to talk with Byron. This is one of the few episodes I recorded outside my study, and it was interesting to see how being in Byron's home affected what we talked about. Their home has some iconography, which led us to eventually talk about idolatry and how that affects us and our society. We also talk about mind-body duality, binaries, and how to break out of those constraining structures. Content warnings for mentions of homophobia and transphobia, as well as talk about severe neglect and sexual abuse. And lastly, I want to remind people that just because I have someone on this podcast doesn't mean I agree with them on all matters, or even many. These episodes are not about facts or saying things perfectly. They are people's stories, their experiences, their processing. Connecting and communicating with ourselves and each other is a messy affair, so I ask for a listening ear and some grace. All right, here's my interview with Byron. My first question is, how do we know each other? We met in a sexual recovery program and have gotten to know each other more through our shared interests in poetry and language and culture and spirituality. Mm. Yeah, I was realizing it's been three years and two months since I started, and that gathering was the first one that I ever went to. So I, yeah, I remember meeting you and feeling awkward. <laughs> uh, not about meeting you. And yeah, we've become friends, pretty good friends. I think some of that is because of COVID, actually. Because <laughs> we would interact a bit more, like, on a weekly basis, not just when we met for recovery, but for talking about spirituality and poetry and things like that. We had shared interests, and it's been a, a beautiful journey. One thing I've noticed is that I feel a deeper connection with people such as you when I have multiple levels of connection of mm. different different shared experiences. So things we can relate to with each other about trauma, about sexual recovery, mm. about spiritual explorations, about comparative religion and literature and writing and you know they're 
Yeah. There are multiple levels that we're able to to engage in and, and that makes for a that makes for a good friendship, I think. Yeah, because we are of different religions and on this podcast I've been very open about being a Christian and you are I just realized that I don't know quite the word to use. Uh you are affiliated with Judaism. Well, I'm definitely Jewish. Yes. <laughs> I'm Jewish ethnically and Jewish culturally and and Judaism is my primary religion. Mm-hmm. I mean it, it is my religion. Yeah. <laughs> um I say I guess the reason that I that primary religion came out of my mouth is that I have interest in and respect for all sorts of religions and I think of every religion as as a feeble human attempt to make sense of the divine which I believe is beyond our mm-hmm. human capacity for understanding mm-hmm. and I I think that there have been wise teachers and perhaps prophets mm. in all sorts of um, cultures and religious traditions. So for me, because Judaism lines up with my ethnic and cultural background and there's something about it that speaks to me, that's that's what I use as my mm. kind of base for that. Mm. Yeah, I think actually we might be getting into my second question, which is I I always have people introduce themselves and say what um, what they would want other people to know about you or the things that are important to you about yourself. Yeah, many years ago, I was having a conversation with a friend, um, another of this kind of friendship where we you know connected on multiple levels, and we were talking about how we had both grown up with the most common question that would be asked between two adults, like Mm. meeting at a cocktail party or whatever, was what do you do? Mm -hmm. Meaning, what's your profession? How do you make your money? Yeah. We were talking about how that didn't really ring true with our values of, like, that's Mm. not the most important thing, defining characteristic of, of a lot of people. So... So then our question was, well, how do we define ourselves? Mm -hmm. And what came up for me then, and it still rings true for me, is that I'm queer, I'm Jewish, and I'm a musician. Mm -hmm. Those are three things that just feel essential to me, that they are part of who I am. Mm. And then if I, you know, go a little deeper, I would say, you know, I'm a spiritual seeker. I'm Mm -hmm. committed to working toward uh ending patriarchy and white supremacy and all, yeah. all sorts of other things that are part of like what I do and, yeah. and what I believe and what's important but yeah when you said uh what was it uh Jewish queer Jewish musician queer Jewish musician those were the first thing three things that I thought that's how you see me also yeah well good I thought because <laughs> well, you know me <laughs> yeah they they need to mention these th- these three things otherwise I'm gonna add one in there um yeah now the the reason actually that I ask that question is because I am currently unemployed and I can't really answer the question of 
what do you do? Or it's, I have to be creative in how I answer it. And also just, you know, we often answer this sort of question with, okay, well, what are people expecting to hear from me? Or what do they want to hear from me? And not what you want to actually tell that person or tell the world. And yeah, that's how I, I ended up adding that question. I didn't have it in the first couple of interviews that I did, but it's a fun question. And what would your answer be? Oh, turning the tables. Um, <laughs> I, well, actually, I, I've done this as part of the, the introduction to this podcast as a whole. Um, uh, I'm a Christian. I'm a missionary kid. I am uh, queer and trans. And I am a creator. Nice. So kind of similar. Poet, or does that come under creator? That is a specific under creator. Yeah. But yeah, I use creator because I've also played around with music some. Um, and I'm creating this, and a, a poet, and I've created other things. And so I really like the term creator, also because it has that connection to the creator God. And that, you know, God created us, and God created us in their own image, and therefore we are also creators. Yeah. Yeah, my understanding uh from a jewish perspective is that we are co-creating the world with god mm -hmm. god gave us a broken world and gave us the job of fixing it hmm. or gave us an imperfect world and gave us the job of striving to make it perfect hmm. with the idea that it it never it may never be perfect but still our job to keep trying to make it more mm -hmm. perfect than it is that is an interesting way of thinking about that. And I think I'm going to be chewing on that for a little bit. Yeah, because it, it definitely goes against what I grew up believing. But I think there, uh, I have a lot of interest in what that would mean. And also just the idea of co-creation is such a spacious way of looking at our experience and with this podcast in fact you know the other creative work that i have done has been solitary and this is the only one that has been essential like an essential part of it is co-creation because i'm co-creating it with you and with everyone that i talk to and so yeah i think of everything i do as a co-creation with with a higher power because, mm. mm -hmm. because, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I've, cer <laughs> I've certainly had experiences of feeling like, oh yeah, there's no way I'm going to be able to, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this, this project. Mm. You know, it's too, it's beyond my capability of doing it, And then somehow I do it and it happens. And I, and so then, 
it proves to me, and this happens repeatedly, mm-hmm. that, yeah, that's not me doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm involved. I have to show up and, you know, yeah. be the conduit or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. something else is making it happen or helping to make it happen. Yeah, I, I like that. And part of me wonders, how could I have forgotten about that like that's such a important thing the idea of we're always working with the divine right and the divine is working in us and co-creating ourselves and everything that we're doing and this is antithetical to the values that I grew up with Mm. because I was raised um with uh, atheist ideology Mm -hmm. and value placed first and foremost on intellect. And so the idea was that we should be able to figure out anything Mm. and we should be able to, you know, set our mind to something. I mean, that's the expression, Mm -hmm. to set your mind to something, basically to make things happen with our minds Mm. by learning what we need to learn, by figuring out what we need to figure out. Mm. And more and more, that's not my experience of what works in life. What works is doing Mm. my part and recognizing that my part is just like the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's just, that's, Mm. that's the small part. And then the the big part is the stuff that I don't know how that happened. (laughs) Yeah. You know, as a musician, I, I mean, I just, use this example that how is it that you can put together certain combinations of sounds and people will start to cry Mm. you know there's nothing and there have been attempts to explain it scientifically for centuries Mm -hmm. or millennia of you know the humors that go through your body and the way that different kinds Mm -hmm. of sounds trigger different different humors Mm -hmm. and or you know, psychological explanations or neurological explanations, but I don't think we've ever really gotten to a a Mm. conclusive scientific explanation for it. Mm. And yet it happens. Mm. Put together a certain combination of sounds and somebody feels something. Yeah. This makes me think, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about idolatry <clears throat> idolatry and um, how certain people could view iconography as uh, as idols and things like that and and I was mentioning how there's a lot of things like technology or celebrities or addictions or things like that all of these can be forms of idolatry and as you were talking I was thinking about the mind as an idol being intellectual and I think that it can be very easy to worship that and and not even realize it I think some people are a little more obvious about the fact that they worship that but you know I grew up with a lot of really smart people um you know high amount of academia and and it's all great and I I love that 
but I, I think that I realized as I was growing older and when I started working with people with different types of minds, you know, with developmental disabilities and, you know, mental health concerns and things like that. that neurodivergence? Oh, yeah, neurodivergence. Um, that you need to be careful about what you're worshipping and who that puts at the sidelines. I'm going to switch to the third question. Uh, and this one is the big one. How do you relate to your body and how have the different experiences and identities influenced how you relate to your body? Okay, I could go on for hours about mm-hmm. how I relate to my body um, and different experiences related to that. And it actually relates to what we were talking about just mm. now. Um, because I was brought up in a culture of living in our minds. Mm. And in in various ways, I was trained to I was trained to ignore my body, mm-hmm. to um, deny it, pretend it's not there, <laughs> hmm. and not to enjoy it. Hmm. So. I experienced sexual abuse from an early age. I also, and maybe related to that, I had a bedwetting mm. problem all through my childhood. Um, the last time I wet my bed, I was 16 years old. Mm. By that time, it wasn't a, a, a common occurrence, mm-hmm. but it still was something that could happen and did happen. Yeah. And um, my parents' approach to that, I think they tried a few things, but what they settled on was just ignore it. Mm. And as a result, um, for years, I would go to bed in a, in a wet, smelly bed because the, they just pretended like it didn't happen. And, mm. and even when it got to the point that, this gets a little gross, but bear with me or don't bear with me. (laughs) This is gross. Um, Even when it got to the point that the mattress was all rotten and the rusty springs were sticking up, it was, uh, that was my bed. So I learned to dissociate and not be present in my, in my body. Mm. And then I was a queer kid. Um, you know, I wanted to be a ballet dancer. I wanted to wear pretty things. And um, I was assigned male at birth. And there were certain things that were appropriate for boys and th- certain things that were not. Mm-hmm. Ballet was not appropriate and wearing too many pretty things and that sort of thing. So... I I think I sought refuge a lot in, in my mind because I was also a really smart kid and I liked to read books and, mm-hmm. and to write and to compose. And um, uh, we were not, yeah, basically not allowed to do sports, not allowed to do um, 
any kind of well we weren't allowed to do any kind of extracurricular activities mm-hmm. so and because I skipped grades in school because I was really smart and we were supposed to be really smart mm-hmm. I I was always younger and smaller than all the other kids mm-hmm. so like physical education was fairly traumatic mm-hmm. in many ways um but Practicing my instrument, that was acceptable. So I, I, you mm. know, I could throw all of that need that I think kids have for like physical expression into that. So I got really technically proficient on my instrument mm. at a young age. And um, so that's sort of early background on my relation with my body. Um, in my 20s, as part of a sort of coming out process... I became very sexually active and used used sexuality as a way of, um, I think, as a way of creating for myself some sort of illusion of connection and some sort of il- illusion of control and of affirmation of my body and my sexuality mm. and, you know, having missed any kind of normal development of... Mm-hmm being able to openly have crushes on people on other kids you know mm. as a as a teenager and you know being able to you know go steady with someone or make out or <laughs> whatever kids are supposed to do i don't know um so after you know so many years of of repression of all that it just came out as like okay i'm gonna do anything entitlement you know there was just mm. all this entitlement of can do anything um, and eventually, you know, I hit a wall with that and, and got into sexual recovery and yeah. And part of, part of that also was realizing that I had used sex to self-soothe from a really early age because mm-hmm. I had been sexualized from a really early age. So long before puberty, I was using sex as a as a self-soothing uh coping mechanism i guess Mm -hmm. and then when i went through a period of abstinence of not engaging in any kind of sexual activity and then came back to like added sexuality back into my life Mm -hmm. i and ever since then and it's been a number of years since that i've really questioned like, wait, how do I relate to my body? And what, and especially as, as someone who is, I don't even know how to identify myself, but probably trans, certainly non-binary. And I guess non-binary is a kind of trans. I don't know. It's all sort of confusing. But um, I realized that there were ways that I would, that I, for a lot of my life, have objectified myself and, used myself like seen myself as if I were someone else Mm. so that I could be turned on by myself because I actually want somebody Mm -hmm. you know because I yeah because you're so dissociated from yourself that you are a different being yeah I learned to I learned to be so dissociated from myself and also I I don't know if homophobia made me want to be a girl, 
or whether transphobia made me want to be a gay male. Mm. You know, it's just, who knows? I mean, I'm 56 years old now, and, Mm. you know, since I was a little kid, I mean, as a little kid, I identified with the other little girls. I played with the girls. I had crushes on the boys. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually, in my late teens, early 20s, I came out as gay and then sort of found a way to exist in the world as a gay man um, or in a way to exist in the society. So I, knowing your story somewhat, at what point did you get married to a woman? <laughs> if you were, if you came out as gay in your teens. Yeah. Well, okay, so I'll tell that part of the story. I don't know. Um I, so I met my first boyfriend when I was 21, and I, I grew up with the idea that you meet one person, you get married, you're with them for life, that's the that's mm, the mm-hmm. end of story, and so I met that person, and we lived together for, I think we lived together for about a year and a half, which mm-hmm. is a long time for a 21-year-old, mm-hmm. and um, then I learned over that time that he wasn't thinking of it as a permanent thing. Mm. And so I I actually ended that relationship. And after I ended that relationship, I found out from a mutual friend that he had been cheating on me the whole time, mm. which was devastating mm-hmm. to me. And at that point, I was becoming very close with uh, a colleague who was who is a cisgender heterosexual woman mm-hmm. who had just gotten out of a icky relationship Mm. and I was done with men she was done with maybe she was done with straight men I don't know Mm. and basically I think well I decided that sex just wasn't that important I wanted to be with someone I loved and felt safe with Mm. and the interesting thing or an interesting thing about it was the amount of societal approval Mm. that we got for that relationship Mm. and you know it's not that i'm not talking about people who showed any kind of overt homophobia Mm -hmm. around my relationship with my first boyfriend but they did not relate to me and that person Mm. the way they related to me and my then girlfriend and it was just like Hmm. suddenly you know we were graduate students and we were like the homecoming king and homecoming queen in our graduate program you know we were the star students and we were you know a couple and we were going to get married and it was just like fairy tale and um Hmm. so we did and then we both were like wait what did we just do (laughs) wait at this by this point we were I guess 25 years old. It's like, wait, so we're, we're, we're basically writing off sex for the rest of our life Mm -hmm. lives at the age of 25. Maybe not. Mm. So, and it had never occurred. It had never occurred to me. I don't think it had occurred to either of us that we could be really close friends. We could move to a new city together. We could live together without, unless we were, boyfriend and girlfriend or 
a married couple or fiancés or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, it just, that wasn't a, a model that had ever occurred mm. to me. So we remained really, really close for a really long time. Um, and a family member of mine, someone from my family of origin, told me it was a tragedy when, when, I, told, when I told her that we, were, that we weren't going to stay married. She said it was a tragedy. And I said, what, why is it a tragedy? I'm happy. She's happy. <laughs> what's, the, what's the problem? Yeah. You know, we, I think to both of us at that time, we just thought as a relief that we had figured out that, oh, no, we don't have to do this. Mm. And, and that, that family member of mine, their response was, yeah, but she's going to meet someone else and get married and you'll be all alone. Mm. Which was... I think a pretty common assumption about, mm. you know, what's going to happen if you're, if you're a queer person in this society. Mm-hmm. Ironically, I've now been with someone for 22 years who I'm deeply in love with and have a pretty sweet relationship with. Mm. And my ex has been married and divorced. And I mean, another time and mm-hmm. like, you know, I just, we all have different paths. So. Yeah. Uh, and you're still close with her, from from my memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think of, I think of her as like a family member, mm. like somebody who will always be part of my life, mm. in one way or another. Mm. Mm. So going back to your question of like, how do I relate to my body? It's confusing now i mean i think it's wonderful that there's so much more awareness about gender diversity and um i love that more and more people are acknowledging that and finding ways of expressing that and Mm. incorporating that into our our ways of relating with one another and our language Mm. and um I think I first started thinking of myself as something like non-binary years ago um, on a social media platform when they started asking uh, about, uh, they, before they asked about pronouns, I think they asked about gender and they had a whole bunch of options of what you could say your gender was and I just put none. And hmm. <laughs> And my husband said, I don't know how I feel about being married to somebody who has no gender. And I said, well, you know what I, you know who I am, what I have. Like, it's like, it just, I don't know. I just felt like, I I think I sort of felt about the gender, like it was a big lie in the same way that the whole marriage thing was. And the, the idea of how we were supposed to get married and, Mm. and like, that relationships that either either you were a sad queer person who would never have love in your life or you were a cisgender heterosexual married person who stayed with your spouse no matter how abusive they were or Mm. whatever you know yeah that those were the options and i sort of feel like that's what i was also given about gender you know either Mm. you're a male and these are the the rules for what that means or you're female Mm -hmm. and these are the rules for what that means then I started being in groups like like our group where where we met, where where people were asked to say their pronouns, and mm. I thought, well, if I'm going to say my pronouns, I guess I 
I would want to say they them. That would mm. be my. That would be my preference to not mm-hmm. be identified as male or female. I don't. It, it that just sort of felt right. And as I got more comfortable with that, and I'd already. I mean, that already was again like on social media. That was already how my mm. things would show up. You know, it was. Because I said I had no gender. <laughs> so how recent is this? Was this development where you were understanding this? Well, I guess over the last ten years. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's since the beginning of the pandemic. It's so hard to keep track of how many years. Like what? What happened when? Yeah. But I think it must be four or five years ago that I started uh, using they them pronouns in all my you know, professional materials, mm-hmm. like when I need to, um, you know, when I need to submit information about myself and my mm-hmm. career, I, I use they, them pronouns. And then the flack that I got for that was intense. Hmm. And it, it, um, and kind of, you know, actually kind of reminds me of when I first started exploring questions about abuse in my childhood Mm. and um like the reaction in my family universally was to try to shut me down in any way and just don't talk about it yeah I had a a family member who didn't grow up in the house with me a a sibling but much older than Mm. I who when I just said something very very faintly gently questioningly about some things that may have mm. may have not been good in my childhood. And this person said, I'm going to go out on a limb and tell you that I know that nothing bad ever happened to you. And that, I mean, that was sort of the most extreme version of it, but that was basically mm-hmm. the reaction I got across the board. And in a way, there's a little bit of a parallel I see between that and the reaction that I've had Um with something as seemingly innocuous as having, you know, using they, them pronouns, which seems like that shouldn't be a big deal, but it freaks people out. And they often say, oh, it's just the grammar that bothers me. You know, I'm fine with gender diversity, but can't you find a way to do it so that it doesn't affect my the, the grammar? That, it, that was me at one time. Yeah. In the non so distant past. It's so interesting. And yeah. then in recent years, and this is a side topic, but I want to mm-hmm. just say in recent years, since I've been doing more anti-racism work, I've learned more about how language is used for gatekeeping mm. and how grammar and our rules of grammar mm. are the rules of a particular mm-hmm. race and class. Yes. And that... Like in our in our culture in the United States, um, black vernacular is not seen as a dialect. It's seen as ignorance and inferiority. Yes. yes. Whereas, you know, in other in other countries and other cultures, there are different dialects depending on where you grew up and things like that that don't have that association mm-hmm. of superior inferior. Yeah, and the the closer you are to uh, quote unquote standard English, 
like the standard English accent or it's not an accent. It is just, it's the way you say <laughs> things, right? Um, the, the better off you are. And this is very clear in movies and stuff like that, where if someone specifically a Southern accent is, is viewed in a very specific way of like stupid or bad or both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this has been like studied specifically in like Disney movies and things like that. But well, yeah, I'm, I'm, and I mean, there's, there's so many little subtle clues because race factors into that mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. How many of those like children's movies are there where the little bad boy has dark hair and the little good boy has blonde hair? Yeah. Like, I mean, that, that struck me, the, uh, what comes to mind is that when I saw the movie Toy Story, mm-hmm. and there was the quote-unquote bad boy who was dark and, you know, clearly troubled, and and then there was the good boy who was blonde, and... Huh. And, I hadn't I mean, even thought about that one. In so many ways, it was a sweet movie, um, mm-hmm. and and it really irritated me. <laughs> yeah and then there was in that I think around the same vintage I don't know um this is all like I'm realizing as I you know being in my mid-50s that some of these references are like very out of date but there was a movie called Pleasantville hmm. that was a lovely charming movie in which um People from the black and white world go into the color world where they can really truly be themselves, and all of them turned into heterosexuals. Huh. Like all of them, like. <laughs> and yeah. I saw this field of people who are like being in love, and I was like, "Really? They're not like." Yeah. When you're, if you know, when they're able to truly be themselves, that's what they're gonna be. Hmm. So there's so many ways that I, that our society tries to put us into boxes and. And to maintain a hierarchy. And I think the problem with queer people, (laughs) and I mean problem as a good thing, (laughs) is that we mess with the system. Because Mm -hmm. the only way you can have, the only way you can have patriarchy and white supremacy work is if you have a clear idea of who's male and who's female, who's white and who's not white. Mm. And which is why, like... um, why there were, uh, what is it, miscegenation laws and stuff like that. You, mm, know, you yeah. gotta, gotta keep the white, the white men over here and everybody else over there. And yes. if we, and if you have men who quote unquote look like women or women who quote unquote look like men or do the things that men are supposed to do or that yeah. it, it, the whole system becomes absurd, which it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. When you, when you, are messing up, messing with, I'm using the word messing, but like, uh, um, yeah. Funny to use that word for this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> messing around with, with the, the lines of, you know, sexuality and gender. Um, people, people get nervous, you know, people, people want to know who and what you are and, um, and and some of these rules become, as you said, absurd when when you think about it. Right now I'm thinking about a rule that I grew up with. Not it wasn't necessarily said out loud. No, maybe it was. But anyway, something that was very familiar in my world, which was uh boys are friends with boys and girls are friend friends with girls. And this this can maybe work okay if you're a little kid, 
you can be friends with with you know can be co-ed mm-hmm. <laughs> but once you reach puberty you that doesn't work anymore and you know if you are a married woman and the assumption is you are married to a man then you can't be friends with with boys anymore with guys with men right and if you are married to a, a man who's married to a woman then you shouldn't hang out with with women and for me i'm like well i'm attracted to both men and women so i just shouldn't be friends with anybody right i have this issue at synagogue when i go to orthodox services because in orthodox services the men are supposed to be on one side and the women are supposed to be on the other side and the idea is that you don't want to be you don't want to be distracted by mm. um being attracted to to mm-hmm. people. But when I'm distracted by all the guys, if I'm on the men's side, like I would be much it would be much easier for me to be on the women's the women's side for I mean if it's just for that reason. Yeah. And also you have to choose between two genders as well. Yeah, yeah. And it totally doesn't make sense if you're bisexual or pansexual or it's just based on a system in which there are just two genders and they have very clear roles. Yeah. And this is what these do and, th- and that's what those do. And mm. it's never been true. Mm. Yeah. And even in early Jewish texts, there are um, examples of multiple genders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been hearing about that more. It's not. It's not new. It's not a twenty-first century creation. Creation. Speaking of which, you know, I, you know, I grew up in a very, uh, very leftist, leftist family. I I had a larger than life size poster of Fidel Castro over my bed when I was seven years old because there was like you know hero of the revolution mm-hmm. and power of the people and blah blah blah. And then I read some of his writings. Uh, when I was in my later teens and um, the, the the communist attitude about homosexuality was mm. that it was a you know an indulgence of the bourgeoisie and mm. mm-hmm. you know and it was very similar to the what I grew up with you know you're supposed to get married and have kids and all be workers for the <laughs> workers for the society which i agree we should all be working for the society and i agree I, yeah there, there are aspects of that that i agree with and, and this kind of goes back to our uh, what we were talking about a little bit earlier about mm-hmm. spirituality i think where we get ourselves into trouble is when we get into these rigid rigid ideas of thinking that we know the answer mm. and i think that's where Again, where queer people have an essential place in in repairing this broken world is mm-hmm. that we remind people constantly that oh no those the, the those rules those assumptions that you had mm-hmm. yeah no they don't really they don't they're not necessarily true they ain't necessarily so <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think that's why like even in, in my own in my own lifetime, like for me as a, you know, in 
in the United States in the 21st century so far, as I'm considered a white person. Mm-hmm. And as a, you know, if I'm a white gay male, I'm basically as privileged as, as you can get in current American society. But no, wait, where was I going with this? This is what I want to say. <laughs> so I grew up with the idea that there were only two kinds of people. There were men and there were women. Mm-hmm. And they were cisgender heterosexual men and cisgender heterosexual women. And anybody who wasn't one of those things was just unmentionable. Mm-hmm. You know, disgusting, sick, perverted, criminal, mm-hmm. whatever. They were just... And not us, you know, other people. Yeah. Um, by the time I was in my early 20s, I really saw it as basically four kinds of people. Mm. Straight men, gay men, straight women, gay women. And I, yeah, there were bisexual people, which were, were sort of suspicious, like, okay, mm-hmm. do they really just not make up their mind yet? Or are they not really, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, that was not taken very seriously mm-hmm. in my world. Transgender people, that was just like, oh, that's just really weird. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Still weren't, not really, not really going there. Um, except that I was always a li- kind of obsessed with drag queens. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, speaking of idol worship. <laughs> mm. I just, I remember my early experiences of going to gay bars and seeing drag queens and just thinking they were the most beautiful, spectacular, transcendent, um, beyond human beings. I'm remembering now something you once said to me about viewing drag queens as priestesses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and... I was, yeah, I, and, and in my, let's see, in, what, what was that, in my late 20s when I started being in various kinds of recovery programs and ones where God would be talked about and mm. there was controversy over using, speaking of pronouns, using male pronouns mm. for God, which bothered me too. And then the way I made um, peace with it was to just picture God as the most transcendently fabulous drag queen ever. And then you could say she, you could say he, doesn't matter. She's fabulous. She's she's aesthetically amazing, you know, beautiful, and yet completely knows how to take care of what needs to be taken care <laughs> of and get shit done. Yeah. So, yes, I, I have had that idea of, of the sort of drag queen priestesses and the mm. drag queen as a deity. And where I was actually going with all of this Mm -hmm. is that it was still all about putting people in boxes. It was like, okay, clearly the two boxes don't work. Let's try four boxes. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, actually the four boxes don't work. Let's try eight boxes. And so, like, I like the term queer because I like the term queer as an uh, all-encompassing one because... I have a hard time with when you try to say uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, asexual, um, mm-hmm. gender nonconforming, you know, all these all these things, what it makes me, what I feel like all of this is yeah. is leading me towards is the idea that we're actually 
all completely unique mm-hmm. and that we have things in common with different people. Um, and in some cases we connect with, uh, with people because of, we can connect with people because of shared experiences. And as mm-hmm. we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, you and I connect because we have multiple areas, multiple places where we can connect. And so yeah. the friendship is, is, is deeper than if it was just, Oh, we're both queer people or something yeah. like that. It's like, well, yeah, but what else? Yeah. Yeah, that can only go so far. Mm. And I definitely, you know, I feel a kinship with other Jews. I feel a kinship with other queer queer folk. Um, and it's not enough. Mm. And I'm interested in, like the difference between tribalism in a negative kind of way mm. and in a, and in a, and well, I guess the difference between tribalism as a negative thing and diversity as a positive thing, mm. like, isn't this cool? Here's a group of people who grew up with this kind of culture and yeah. make these foods and speak these languages and, yeah. or whatever. And here's a group of people that do this other thing and to be able to enjoy that. And like, I wouldn't want to, you know, when I say we're, we're all unique, I wouldn't want to, um, uh, like, downplay our, mm. our fabulous cultures, including our fabulous cultures as queer people. Mm. Yeah. I've heard other people of my generation and older lament or at least be nostalgic about the old days when we were more oppressed in our society than we are now, when we had all of these codes and signs <laughs> and ways of recognizing each other. And now, like, we don't need those, which is great. Yeah. But then also there's something get, that gets lost in the, mm-hmm. the, the loss of culture. It's one of the, it's sort of the, like, assimilation versus li- liberation yes. thing. I remember talking to someone in grad school who specifically would say like yeah um, I think it was specifically about gay marriage and or same uh, marriage equality let's call it that mm-hmm. um, and was saying well yeah that works for those who want to follow like these very certain rules and uh, want to be like straight couples and like it works only for a certain type of queer person. And actually, we're weird, and we like the fact that we're weird and not wanting to lose that and recognizing that that's also a part of this culture. And I remember at the time being a little concerned of, like, you know, the idea of, like, splitting more and more. But I think I I respect the fact that, you know, we're not just going to... The need isn't just to be able to accept the closest version to uh, mainstream culture that 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 is palatable. And I think there is something important about that. Right. Mm. I think it's important to have people who force the dominant culture mm. to recognize that it's or to f- to force people who have privileged, but in another way, 
to recognize that their privilege isn't isn't a given. Yeah. Um, which gets to a really Jewish thing for me because the what's repeated over and over in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, is being kind to strangers, taking care mm-hmm. of strangers or foreigners or the you know the mm-hmm. and the um, the less privileged, you mm-hmm. know, the stranger, the widow. Um, and it always says, because remember, you were strangers in the land mm-hmm. of Egypt. Yeah. Or you were, you know, you were the, the unprivileged people there. Mm-hmm. And that idea of always recognizing, you know, what's my privilege and who doesn't have that privilege and what can I do to help them have more. Yeah. Seems really basic to my understanding of Judaism. You know, something that I'm starting to realize is, as much as I love talking about all of this, that that we've gone in more and more into our minds and talking <laughs> about that. And I, I'm feeling the, the desire to get back into our bodies. The bodies, yeah. I actually, it's funny that you said that because I noticed that just a couple minutes ago, I thought, well, I'm just kind of talking a lot. Am I trying to like keep mm-hmm. talking so that you won't ask me questions that I don't want to answer? <laughs> There's, there is something that I want to bring us back to if you're comfortable with it. Um, uh, that just struck me. Um, when you were talking about your childhood and the very serious neglect that you experienced when you were talking about your bed and as it was disintegrating, essentially, that... I, I had a very, like, visceral response to that. And I always want to listen to when I have that. Um, especially as you were saying, you know, you were bringing up sexual abuse stuff, but, like, w- when that person, family member, said absolutely nothing wrong happened, uh, I was like, well, sexual abuse aside, that... <laughs> I think something wrong happened. Um, yeah, there are things, there's a lot that I don't remember about my childhood. I I just, yeah. you know, I learned to dissociate at an early age. And yeah, there are things that I can't, can't talk about because I don't, yeah. because I don't know. I'm pretty sure that there are things like what I, like that example that I do remember mm. that, if child protective services had not, I would have been removed from mm-hmm. that yeah. home. I don't think that. I don't think that would have been considered. Oh, that's okay. No, no. I mean, even without the emotional impact, the it's hazardous, right? Like it is physically dangerous. Mm-hmm. to be in that situation to like yeah. but we had lots of books in the house and piano lessons and yeah <laughs> you know it's uh, something that no one would expect yeah from your family on the outside i'm gonna guess well i wonder about that though because it was very i mean like i know i, I come from a big family and i'm the youngest so i have lots of older siblings and i know that 
that my older siblings' friends all just loved my parents because they had very a lot of people in that in the in mm-hmm. those years had very you know rigid kinds of upbringings and they mm. saw they you know I grew up on a farm and we had this mm. and it was this like very like they were, like my parents were kind of like hippies before that was a thing mm. you know so it was all like it seemed really cool but it was also just like total lack of boundaries and mm. and chaos and Mm. You know, there wasn't, um, there wasn't a kind of structure that I think a lot of kids, if not all kids, kind of need. Mm-hmm. Like a little bit of, um, yeah, it was just kind of a free for all. Mm. And there were so many, there were so many people and so many kids and so much commotion that, mm. like, it wasn't like. Like I see friends who have kids now mm. and the care that they take about their children and they like the, mm. and I, and then I think about the experience that I grew up in. It's like, I, sometimes I think, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I think they're being some of <laughs> my friends and colleagues and such are being way too careful and indulgent and stuff mm-hmm. like that because it's so opposite to yeah. my experience. But um and for me it's so it's so mixed because it would have helped me a lot to have had more attention and more mm. awareness of what was going on with me but also on the other hand because there were such rigid ideas of what as a quote unquote boy I was supposed to be doing and stuff in mm. a way it was there were some advantages to being able to just kind of do my own thing and Mm. except that it was all very isolated because we lived out in the country we couldn't get anywhere without Mm. parents or older siblings taking us you know there i never Mm. uh yeah i became a city person because i like to know that i can walk anywhere i need to go yeah i like to know that I can get to a place where I can get whatever I need. Yeah, when I think and not of, be at somebody else's mercy. Right. When when I think about you now, I think yeah, you you live in a city, so that you can walk anywhere and you can do that on your own two feet. Mm-hmm. Um, you are very interested in structure, and you create a lot of structure for yourself, and you do a lot of inner kid care. All of those are true. And and that was just absent. Like you do things specifically to take care of yourself because that did not exist. Also, when we were kids, the 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 best compliment would, would have been and was like how grown up you were. Mm. Like mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, if we could all sit around the table and discuss Tolstoy, you know, the the 10 year old and the 14 year old and the 18 year old and the 22 year old and the grown ups and you know mm-hmm. everybody could yeah. if we could all you know have a conversation about Tolstoy that was that was just so impressive and mm. which I still you know I mean as a kid I I loved books and reading and yeah. I was smart 
and then sometimes I think, yeah, but like, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't, I'm not sure where I'm, where I'm going with that. Mm. Well, I, well, I think it's because you said about inner kid, Yeah. you know, I think it's exhausting to always have to be a grown up. It's exhausting when mm-hmm. you're 56 and it's probably exhausting when you're 10 as well. Yeah. Mm. I, I was curious before, uh, as you were yeah, talking sort of nonstop, and I'm like, this is a little different than than what I usually like expect. Um, and you sensing that within yourself of like, well, maybe I want to avoid certain things. Um, well, it's also, I mean, I joke often about wind me up and watch me go, because this happens to me in professional situations when I'm being interviewed for professional stuff. Mm. that the interviewer will ask me one question and I'll just start talking and talk for the next 25 minutes or something like that because I have lots of ideas and things I want to share. And that's part of it is the, I have lots of ideas and lots of things I want to share. And another part of it, which I have noticed before, is that I, in a lot of ways, I'm a shy, introverted person Mm. and have a lot of fear and fear of being seen and fear of being judged. Mm. And there's a kind of manic quality to it. I think mm. partly that, okay, I'm going to have to talk. So just talk and just, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to, <sighs> to be still and, mm-hmm. yeah. and to trust, you know? Yeah. I, I can say some things. I don't have to say everything. Please, yeah, we're we're not we're going to be talking here forever if you <laughs> if you say everything. Um, Do you have more questions? Mm, I was. Uh, I think I was just in a place of feeling things out and gauging where you were. And I had a therapist briefly. Who. Got me talking about some childhood abuse kind of stuff. And as we got to the end of the hour, they they said, so how are you feeling? And I said, I feel kind of like, you know, when you're a little bit drunk and you're talking to somebody like mm. in a bar and you talk and you start talking about really personal stuff. And, mm. and the therapist said, well, that sounds nice. And I thought, no, I don't. Mm. That was the last time I saw that therapist. Mm. It's like, no, I don't want to be like a little bit drunk and sort of bearing my soul because my defenses are down kind of thing. Mm. Um, So let me just think, talk a little bit about intention. Mm. Um, Like, what would I want? from talking about painful things about my life, Mm. um, what I would want is to help others not feel alone and especially to not feel alone with secrets because secrets are bad. Mm. (laughs) I think just universally bad secrets are not a good idea. And um, I think 
I've devoted a lot of energy in my life to trying to look right or to trying to seem right, to be acceptable, to be acceptable as a boy or to be acceptable as a gay man or to be even even to be accepted as whatever whatever I am now. You know, when I started this is maybe five years ago by now, four years ago or something, and I when I started um, recognizing myself as queer and non-binary and trying to explore that, and I went to a support group that's a weekly drop-in meeting for um, for trans people, and I just felt like, well, I'm not trans enough for these people. Mm. It's sort of like that feeling of, oh, you know, maybe if I... Maybe if I shaved my head on one side and grew my hair long on the other <laughs> side and dyed it a funny color, then I could be in a in a queer non-binary support group and I would fit in. <laughs> like, wait a minute, why do I have to look a certain way? You know, like I'm trying to fit into whatever it is. I feel so called out right now. <laughs> Not about the hair coloring, but yeah. Yeah, I, I don't look queer enough or I don't look trans enough or non-binary enough. I go through that every time I get, I even hesitate to say misgendered, but you know, when, when, um, when people don't use my pronouns, when people use the wrong pronouns, Mm. um, I think, well, it's my fault because, you know, if I made myself look less male, then they wouldn't use male pronouns. I need to, maybe I need to change something about my, you know, some aspect of my, Mm. of how I look and then I think wait no isn't that kind of not the point or isn't that kind of exactly the point or not changing yourself for other people yeah and the idea that I think that it it relates to people wanting to hold on to their boxes Mm. of oh this person has soft skin and breasts therefore they're female this person has rougher skin and facial hair therefore they're male or yeah or or whatever and and so they they can be a little bit okay with okay well that person just looks weird because they have long hair and they wear lipstick but they have a beard so okay there's some kind of weird thing so okay we'll use their weird pronouns right and we'll just put them in the weird box mm. but what if they just look like what we think is a man but they're not right and then it then it just messes up the whole system because you can't put it in the weird box anymore yeah it messes up the new system like (laughs) in place of the old system a new system was put there and and you need to fit that system this actually makes me think of you know when when you were talking about uh, being raised in, um, I think sometimes you've used the language of like a fundamentalist, atheistic home. And I was just thinking, oh, how similar fundamentalism looks, no matter what it's fundamentalist about. Right, yeah, I agree. Like even as you were saying about um, the idea of marriage, that you will meet one person, you will be with that person, you will get married, and you will always be there. Like, 
no matter what. Um, and if there's anything that goes wrong, you just don't talk about it. Right. If and, somebody has an affair or is molesting their children or whatever, you just, as long as you don't talk about it, you still, everything's fine. Yeah. And th- that sounds very similar to a um, religious fundamentalist home. I was talking to someone else on this podcast and we talked a lot about boxes and about fundamentalism and just bumping into that all the time and and being like, wait a minute, wasn't I supposed to leave this behind? But we always find new ways of creating those things. And our challenge is just to keep... Well, you know, we were talking about (laughs) idolatry. I think... The boxes are idols. Like, mm. stop worshipping <laughs> those idols. <laughs> mm. You know, God is not in a box. And mm. if we're created in the image of God, I mean, how many different names does God have in the Bible? So, mm-hmm. And how many different ways does God show up in the Bible? It, it's not a consistent, uh, I mean, even just looking at it, you know, as literature, it's not a, consistent character (laughs) Mm. Um, complex mm -hmm. Mm. complex and what's the word like um ephemeral Mm. and Mm. the angels that show up Mm. you know are they aspects of god are they people are they like Mm. Yeah, because I know there's several passages where it's like, wait a minute, is that God or is that a messenger of God? Um, It's often really ambiguous. Yes. Yeah. And we are ambiguous. Mm. And what fundamentalism of whatever kind, kind tries to do is to is to rid us of anything that's unambi- that's um, anything that's ambiguous. Yeah. Nothing is ambiguous. Everything is clear. You're male, you're female. You're married, you're single. You're a good person, you're a bad person. <laughs> you're, you know, it's, yeah. Um, you know, earlier you were saying something about getting, like talking about the pain in your life or, or something. I... Not, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but when you said that, I thought, you know, this is not just a place for talking about pain or like the, the um, painful experiences that you have with your body. It can also be a place to talk about the, uh, you know, if, if true, the parts where you have felt embodied and have felt that that is a um, a beautiful thing or a wonderful thing as you've been understanding yourself more and been kind to your your inner kid have you experienced those things i would say my most embodied experience might be um in my late 20s early 30s i frequented a a gay country western bar that had um line dancing and two-stepping and they had classes and they had 
and then they, you know, certain nights they had classes, and then other nights they had free, dan- mm-hmm. um, you know, like open dancing, mm-hmm. and the the custom there was that when you ask someone if they wanted to dance, you would say, "Are you a, do you want to lead or do you want to follow?" It was mm-hmm. not based on mm-hmm. on gender or perceived gender or anything. It was just either you're leading or you're following. And I think most people sometimes led, sometimes followed. Sometimes it would depend who you were dancing with, mm. whether you wanted to lead or follow. And the culture there was that it was, that was really mostly observed was that if somebody asks you to dance, you say yes. Mm. And that it wasn't a pickup bar. It was a dancing bar. People were going there to dance. Mm. Um, so people drank less mm. because you couldn't be a very good dancer if you'd had more than maybe a beer. Mm. Um, actually, I don't know how they stayed in business for as long as they did because I know that bars depend on just selling lots of alcohol. That's what, how they make their money. But... But somehow they they managed. They were they were around for a long time, and I think part of what felt really embodied there. For one thing, I was dancing, which you know I haven't gotten to do that much in my life, and mm. that's a happy place for me. And I think there really was kind of a. Um, I I didn't think of it this way at the time, but looking back on it, there was a kind of a neutrality about gender Mm. you know it wasn't you didn't have to know what anybody's gender was Mm. you just had to know whether they were leading or following Mm. and um plus there was a mirror ball (laughs) and it was a pretty room Mm. (laughs) and i like country music and yeah i think that felt pretty connected and connective That said, sorry to bring it bring it down, I would always get really scared walking to and from there when there was mm-hmm. a place where I had to um, go on a bridge over a highway mm-hmm. to get to and from my apartment. And I, to varying degrees, sometimes extremely and sometimes just mildly, I was scared that I would just jump over and Mm. jump into the traffic. Mm. Um, So there was something about, yeah, something like deeply ingrained in me that that was like Mm. wanting to, I don't know if it was wanting to punish me for Mm. being in that embodied space. It was too good mm-hmm. and too intense of a good experience. I can understand that. And and I also find in there the ambiguity of really good experience and then this fear on both sides. Is it a good experience? Is it a bad experience? And it's instead it's this complex experience where Mm -hmm. you have very 
like as you described the space, it was very physical, like all of your senses, the the visual beauty, the sound of country music, um, you're, you're tactile, you're, you're dancing and you're with other people. Um, you're tasting things, you are having alcohol. And then well, I wasn't having alcohol, I think, because I oh. wanted to dance, but but they had peanuts. They had peanuts. <laughs> so you, you were so eating I was, something. I was having snacks, yeah, sure. And then and then like maybe I, I don't know, maybe I would have had a beer back then. Back then I probably could drink one beer and be okay. Now I now I can't. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was an intense visceral experience. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Was there anything else that you think is, that you want to say before we end today? Can it be silly? Absolutely. In that case, I want to tell you my favorite story from childhood. (laughs) Um, It's the story of uh, a famous rabbi who was dying. Mm. and so he was on his deathbed and people came from miles around to see the famous rabbi you can include this or not Mm. (laughs) I love it I love it Um, miles around and the the distinguished elders of the community were right around the rabbi's bed and the wealthy people of the town were nearby and then there was a long line that went for blocks and blocks to like the less and less so-called important people Mm. and some poor poor guy at the end of the line said so what are his last words and they started passing up the line what are his last words find out what his last words are come on, let's get his last words already. What's the what's with, you know? So they're passing it up the line, and it gets to the front of the line, and the distinguished elder at the front of the line says, Rabbi, people have come from miles around to hear your great words of wisdom on this, on this holy day. Uh, what do you have to tell the people? And the rabbi says, life is like a barrel. And so they pass it down the line. Life is like a barrel. Life is like a barrel. He says, life is like a barrel. Life is like a barrel. And the guy at the end of the line says, life is like a barrel? What does he mean, life is like a barrel? (laughs) So they pass up the front line. What does he mean, life is like a barrel? Ask him what he means, life is like a barrel. What is this, life is like a barrel? And the distinguished gentleman at the front line says, Rabbi, everyone is asking. What do you mean? Life is like a barrel. All right. So life isn't like a barrel. <laughs> uh, I thought I better why, of it. <laughs> I don't know why, but for some reason, that's that's been my favorite story since I was, I don't know, 10 or something like mm, that. <laughs> no, it's great. I love it. I think it relates in some way. It does. It does. <laughs> well, it's well for one thing, it's confusing to the people. They want a specific kind of words of wisdom thing, and instead they're getting life is like a barrel, and then life is not like a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it is or it's not. We're male or we're female or maybe we're not male or female. Or... I don't know. The humanity of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing your, your story with, with me and with us. You are welcome. I require the presence of an unambiguous yes as opposed to an ambiguous yes or the absence of a no. Mm -hmm. So you could fall off the face of the earth and it would never never be released. Yeah. Hope I don't fall off the face of the earth. That would be bad.